Hi, I'm Dr. Peter Grinspoon. I'm a cannabis specialist at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston and the author of the recent book, Seeing Through the Smoke. about cannabis is dedicated to providing reliable cannabis science education to anyone curious enough to learn to get access to free courses and other educational resources visit learn.cacpodcast.com and become a curious about cannabis member for free the curious about cannabis book provides an incredible crash course in cannabis science through over 500 pages of content filled with photos, activities, science experiments, games, and more to help guide you through your personalized cannabis education journey. This book has become a trusted textbook in colleges and universities across North America and is absolutely perfect for serious learners, as well as cannabis educators, bud tenders, clinicians, patients, and caregivers. And special thanks to the many individuals, companies, and organizations that have helped Curious About Cannabis meet our mission of becoming the number one trusted source of cannabis science education on the planet. This includes organizations like Credo Science with Ethan Russo, The Conigma, Treadwell Farms, The Spellman Report with Kevin Spellman, The Workshop, Green Earth Medicinals, CBD National, Magnolia Botanicals, and more. Visit cacpodcast.com slash sponsors to learn about our sponsors and go show them some love for helping us spread cannabis science education far and wide to anyone curious enough to learn. If you like Curious About Cannabis, consider checking out some of these other learning initiatives by Natural Learning Enterprises. and unyielding, grounding, yet transcendent. It's a curious thing. Let's explore it together. Isn't Life Curious? Available at isn'tlifecurious.com or wherever you experience podcasts. And now, back to the show. Hey, everybody. This is Jason with Curious About Cannabis. Thanks so much for tuning in once again. So today, I have a really special guest that I've been looking forward to talking to for a really long time. Um, Really goes back even to my early days of getting into cannabis science and trying to understand how does cannabis affect the body and how do we sort um, myths and, and, and fact and all this stuff. So today... I'm really happy to say that I'm joined by Dr. Peter Grinspoon. Peter, thanks so much for taking the time to come on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to see that you just came out with a new book. I'm familiar with your previous book. I think it came out around 2016 or so. Um, And so really excited to see that you're still writing and pushing out new books. Um, So this new book, Seeing Through the Smoke, uh, just came out on 420. And um, let's start out by diving a little bit into that, and we'll kind of work backwards and talk a little bit about your history and how you got here. But tell us about this new book. 
Well, I've been involved with cannabis, as we'll talk about my like my entire life, not to mention my entire career as a primary care doctor and cannabis specialist. And, you know, I it's just very troubled by the fact that there are these two views of cannabis, depending on who you talk to, it sounds like they're talking about a different plant grown on a different planet. So I really trace how we got to these two different views of cannabis that are like very minimally overlapping. And then I go through each of the harms um, with the latest science. I talk about, you know, driving and teen use and cognition and pregnancy and addiction. And I go through all the benefits uh, using the latest science. And I talk about, you know, can it help with insomnia, with chronic pain? Can it help people with addiction? Can it help with cancer pain? Can it help treat cancer, autism? So I go through all the benefits and I, again, review all of the latest science, but I also talk a lot about the social history and the war on drugs. And I come up with a, you know, sort of a middle of the road position that it certainly should be legalized, but these are the ways we can maximize benefit and minimize harms. Well, yeah, and this is so huge coming, um, particularly from your perspective as a physician. Um, And not just that, but... your background. I mean, your, your family lineage goes, goes far back into trying to understand the, you know, what's really going on with cannabis as well as psychedelics and, and how to communicate responsibly about these substances so that the public can properly understand and make informed decisions. Cause right now there's, there's hype on all sides. There's hype on the anti-cannabis side and there's hype on the pro-cannabis side. And so this, this, you know, middle line approach is very much needed from someone with the experience and knowledge to really speak on it. Cause there's, you know, to be frank, there's a ton of doctors out there that are just getting into the cannabis space that really don't know much and are trying to write books and push all of these things out. And I'm always like, ah, like, I don't know who you are and what you actually know, but you've, you've been in this for a long time. You've been thinking about this for a very long time. You have very personal connections to the science of cannabis and cannabis as a medicine. Um, so I, right away, I wanted to point out that differentiation, that your perspective is a very unique perspective. And so I think it's worth, you know, I said we were going to kind of work backwards. And I think this is a good um, segue to that. Um, do you mind sharing um, just how that perspective has evolved? Because I'm sure some of our listeners maybe aren't familiar with your dad and your brother's story. Um, and then your own personal story with addiction that you wrote about in your 2016 book, all that's connected to cannabis and trying to find um, better ways forward um, for health. So um, let's start diving into that. How how did your story start? Well, I have been a medical cannabis provider to patients for about two decades, you know, for my entire medical career. So I have a lot of experience treating patients. Uh, and um, as you mentioned, I am happily in recovery for 15 years now from a vicious opioid addiction. And I found cannabis very helpful in getting me off the opioids. But the main way I got started on cannabis, there are two different ways. One, as you alluded to before, my dad was a very sort of legendary uh, cannabis specialist at uh, Harvard Medical School. Um, he was a psychiatrist. His name was Lester Grinspoon. And he wrote a book called Marijuana Reconsidered in 1971 where he really thought for himself and looked independently at all the research. You know, all the psychiatrists were against it back then. They were sort of echoing the government's position because of the war on drugs. And there was very little like independent thought. I mean, 
there's really very little independent thought today as well. But yeah. back then there was like no independent thought. And my dad concluded that of course there are harms with cannabis. Pregnant women shouldn't use it. Teenagers shouldn't use it. But the harms of criminalizing it were much worse uh, keeping it illegal and preventing it from patients and and just uh, you know criminalizing adults who wanted to use it recreationally was far worse than the harms of actually using cannabis yeah. itself, uh, which is sort of like ridiculous when you think about it. So he came out again in 1971 when 12% of Americans supported full legalization of cannabis. He um, came out calling for full legalization. Um, that number went up about a point for each of the 50 years my dad worked on it. And by the time he passed away uh, two years ago, 69% of Americans, including more than 50% of Republicans, are now in favor of full legalization wow. of cannabis. Uh, the American public realizes we've been sold a bill of goods about cannabis. It's safer than alcohol. It's much more helpful than alcohol, and it doesn't make any sense for it to be illegal. The second way I got involved is that my brother Danny, unfortunately, he was my older brother, was fighting a losing battle with leukemia. And my parents illegally bought him cannabis in the early 1970s, right when Richard Nixon yep. was just trying to gear up his uh, war on drugs, which turned out to be such a spectacular failure. And um, just watching my older brother, Danny, be able to eat, to hold down food, to come down and play with his little brothers. I was like eight years old. Uh, there's very There are very few things more impactful than yeah. seeing the alleviation of suffering in a family member. So I was sort of propelled into a career in medicine with the knowledge that yes, cannabis absolutely is a medicine for some people in some circumstances. It doesn't work for everybody. Some people can't take it. Some people right. shouldn't take it. But I, I, from the very day one of medical school, I knew cannabis had the potential to be a medicine. So I had a very different perspective than many of the other physicians uh, going through medical school, residency, and entering my medical career as a adult primary care doctor. And did you run into friction with other healthcare professionals, given that you had this perspective early on at a time when it was not um, it was not the in thing to support medical cannabis and you know to promote um, you know this idea of, of of using it as a as a real serious um, therapeutic agent? Um, what was that like going through medical school and interacting with you know? other folks in the healthcare community, um, did they understand and, and support that? Or did you run in, did you butt heads a lot with, with other people? Uh, some of each, um, some doctors were very open to it. They were just sort of afraid to say it yeah, because yeah. there's a lot of political pressure to be like super conservative on these issues. Um, uh, some doctors just didn't care at all about it. They were looking forward to like, you know, their lucrative careers as doctors, and they weren't very sort of socially involved in any issues. And a lot of the younger doctors were very much in favor of it. So I definitely had a wide variety of perspectives. One thing I've come to conclude over the last like quarter century that I've been involved with cannabis is that what type of doctor you are and your vantage point mm. into the people using cannabis sort of informs what you think about it. So for example, it's hard to find an oncologist who is against medical cannabis because they see that it helps their patients with the pain, the anxiety, the insomnia from cancer, the nausea and vomiting from the chemotherapy, like it helped my brother. So something like 90% of oncologists are in favor of, of, of medical cannabis. It's hard to find one that's against it. Then you have in the other extreme, like the pediatric psychiatrists, yeah. and they see the rare, relatively rare, but unfortunate cases where cannabis can make psychosis worse in a teenager or young adult. 
So they tend to be very biased against it. Um, I think the psychiatrists don't have a very well-rounded view of cannabis. They only read the negative studies by and large. You can't generalize about all of them. And, um, you know, they just seem very closed off. The American Psychiatric Association still has, um, you know, publications where they put the words, quote, medical marijuana, unquote, in these derogatory quotation marks. And it's like 94% of Americans now believe in legal access to medical marijuana. I mean, it's like one of the very, name something else that 94% of Americans agree on. 94% of Americans don't agree that the sky is blue. Who would have thought the cannabis is what unites? And I I think that um, what's been very interesting is that the patients realized before the doctors did, probably because they were the ones using it, Mm -hmm. that we were sold a bill of goods about cannabis and that it's not as harmful as it's been portrayed and that it really has a lot of important medicinal benefits. Absolutely. And one thing that you're you're kind of pointing out that I've seen as well is depending on what side of the healthcare system you're on, there tends to be this, with cannabis particularly, this emphasis on the potential harms while ignoring the, um, you know, the very real improvements to quality of life. And there's also um, like some, uh, some pieces of the healthcare community get really caught up on modes of action. They're like, well, we don't understand enough about how it works or um, what could potentially go wrong with um, pharmaceutical interactions, and thus we shouldn't touch it at all. While meanwhile, with most pharmaceuticals, we don't know how they work. Well, absolutely. I mean, there are like eight different ways to respond to that. I mean, as a doctor, I look at what is the least toxic treatment for my patient. There's no such thing as a medicine without any side effects or without any risks. You could have a allergic reaction to aspirin, right? You could, your, the, the ibuprofen you take could give you a heart attack and ulcer or kill your kidneys. So, you know, it's just a question of putting it all in context. And um, with the war on drugs, there was so much incentive from law enforcement, from the government, from the rehab industry that loved to get these um, referrals for cannabis addiction. There, there was so much money to be made in criminalizing drugs that the negative narrative really got... Um, reinforced and there was very short shrift given to the benefits. In fact, the US government um, didn't fund any fund any studies or researchers who were studying benefits of cannabis. They only funded harm. We've only been looking at harms and not at benefits. So our understanding of the harms is great. Uh, you know, it's safer than alcohol, it's safer than tobacco. There's no reason on earth it shouldn't be legal, but at the same time, people shouldn't use cannabis when pregnant or breastfeeding, except under very specific circumstances, like whatever else they'd be using would be more dangerous. Teenagers shouldn't be using cannabis, though we don't accomplish that by lying to them like we did with the D.A.R.E. program. The minute you lose credibility to the teenager, good luck getting it back. It's critical to tell teenagers the truth that, you know, we we get it. It's fun. It's interesting, but it hurts your brain. You shouldn't use it until age 18. And we have to be careful with people who are driving, they shouldn't drive and then use cannabis, though it is much less dangerous than under the influence of alcohol. So I'm a little bit mystified where there's such a hyper-focus on cannabis when cannabis roughly doubles your chance of an accident, which is unethical to drive after using cannabis because you could end up mowing down an innocent family with little kids. So I don't recommend it, but alcohol is like 14 times more dangerous. It's much more dangerous. And driving under cannabis is sort of like 
driving under the Benadryl you took or your opiate or your benzodiazepine or your antidepressant or your gabapentin. So, you know, we recommend that people don't drive under any of these substances. But in reality, you know, do you, do you want to arrest the medical cannabis patient that's taking a small puff twice a day and isn't impaired at all, uh, you know, this, or just as impaired as someone who might be on a Benadryl, which isn't ideal either? Or do you want to arrest a person who's like weaving down the street, regardless of whether it's alcohol, opiates, you know, methamphetamine or cannabis? I mean, I think we need to be consistent uh, about these things and give up this like hyper focus on cannabis, the evil weed, as again, 94% of Americans are viewing it as a safe and effective medication. I think law enforcement has to catch up. The psychiatrists have to catch up and the medical community has to catch up or they're going to they're going to continue to be left out of the discussion, which is really dangerous for everybody involved. Yeah, I think that's it's really important what you just hit on that the context matters behind all of these effects and statistics and things that um, that get brought out that when you say that using cannabis doubles your chance of having a wreck, that sounds bad and it's not good. Um, but when you compare it to other things, it, it changes how you um, contextualize that. You know, one thing that I've thought about is, it, you know, it's not good to drive when you're extremely emotional either. You know, if you just experience something really terrible and you're a wreck, you know, psychologically and crying, you know, so you shouldn't be driving then either. And you have an increased chance of a wreck. But should you go to jail for it, you know, is a... Don't forget lack of sleep. That's what yes. they do to doctors. We had the uh, 36 hour shifts and then we have to drive home and people will get hurt driving home and driving after a full night of being awake is like driving drunk. And it's likely, I doubt it's been studied head to head, but it's likely as are certainly more dangerous than driving under the influence of cannabis. And it's, it is really bizarre how we hyper-focus on certain things and sort of just ignore other things because they don't fit into our political agenda. Like we're waging a war on drugs. Right. So we need to focus on cannabis. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And cannabis has always been the easy target too, just in terms of uh, the war on drugs because of its smell um, and how long it lasts in the body. It's just always been so easy to use that as a way to uh, go after whoever we don't like really, because so many people, cannabis use is, is so widespread. I think more so than a lot of people acknowledge um, that it, it does become a powerful target um, to use. And so on that note, it's nice to see that things are changing. It's nice to see that, um, you know, more and more people are getting more protections against unlawful search and seizures. For instance, it's harder for law enforcement to use the smell of cannabis as a reason to, um, yeah, try to bust people for one thing or another, which makes them focus on actual harm. Like what is someone actually doing that hurts somebody? Um, and is that worth, pursuing um to ruin their life over because i mean arresting somebody um i mean it it does completely change someone's life and i think sometimes um the anti-cannabis crowd kind of minimizes that um of, of the the actual effects um both psychologically culturally um and and even just with their mental physical health uh, that that has once they get busted for cannabis um, um on many levels no, I just have to say I couldn't agree with you more. Um, the uh, the effects of involvement in the criminal justice system, if you get an arrest record, it can affect your employment. Right. It can affect your education, your student loans. 
It could affect your housing. It could literally affect everything. And here we are pathologizing people and, you know, getting them entangled with the criminal justice system for no reason. I mean, since Nixon started his war on drugs, there have been more than 20 million uh, arrests just for cannabis possession, mostly brown and black people. And it, yeah. it's ruining lives. It's impoverishing na- neighborhoods. It's people lose their kids. And it's just cruel and it's completely useless. Um, I'm glad that things are changing, but uh, you know they're changing more rapidly in some places than in others, and we still have a lot of work to do. Absolutely, absolutely. There are still plenty of places, um, both around the world and even in the United States, where cannabis prohibition is still alive and well, and the risks are very, very high. Um, I wanted to come around to talking about addiction because you mentioned that cannabis was a part of of your your journey of trying to um, get into recovery and and get over an opioid addiction. Um, Can you, that's something that I think is very controversial. Um, A lot of uh, people have strong opinions on um, cannabis and addiction and its role both in treating addiction and whether cannabis itself is addiction, is is addictive. And, you know, a lot of, um, you were mentioning uh, psychiatrists. My wife is a mental health therapist, so I'm kind of tapped into that world. And I know there's this concern of like, oh, no, you're trading one addictive substance for another (laughs) Uh, as a very common, you know, uh, uh, bit of feedback that that comes along. So do you mind speaking a bit about that journey and um, both your experience and the science behind, um, you know, this topic? Um, What's the truth there around one, how addictive is cannabis actually? And then what is its potential role and what was your experience in using it to try to overcome it? You know, what I would say is a a very actual, very serious addiction um, to opioids. Well, those are great questions. Uh, Cannabis is addictive. Um, It's not nearly as addictive as tobacco or alcohol. Um, The quality of the addiction, there's certainly people that misuse it, that overuse it, that smoke away um, sort of their, their will to do other stuff. Teenagers are more susceptible to addiction than adults because to a certain extent, addiction is a learning disorder Hmm. and they learn to medicate their boredom, their angriness, uh, their distress, their loneliness instead of uh, talking to people or self-soothing. So it's definitely addictive. Now, the quality of addiction is not the same as an opiate addiction. Nobody is robbing pharmacies or like injuring themselves to get cannabis as they do with opiates uh, because the withdrawal is my mild to moderate, not like completely soul crushing like it is for opiates. Now, cannabis withdrawal isn't life threatening, uh, like the withdrawal from benzodiazepines or alcohol. So the quality of addiction is different. And I think that um, there hasn't been enough uh, thought or attention being given to the fact that like being addicted to opiates is very life threatening. Being addicted Mm -hmm. to cannabis can really impair the quality of your life and your future prospects, but it's not a lethal, deadly addiction. We don't have 100,000 people dying from cannabis in the last 12 months as we do from fentanyl. So there's been a really false equivalence. And then furthermore, the rates of cannabis addiction have been exaggerated because the way the psychiatrists and the government define cannabis addiction, they define it very, very broadly. For example, you need two out of 11 criteria to qualify as having cannabis addiction, one of which is tolerance and one of which is withdrawal. Now, when we prescribe opiates for uh, medical purposes, we don't include tolerance and withdrawal 
in the definition of addiction because everybody who uses medicinal opiates has tolerance and withdrawal. And right. what would be the utility of pathologizing, of, 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 of saddling with the definition of addiction and stigmatizing all these people that are taking medicinal opiates? It doesn't make any sense. The same is true for antidepressants and for benzodiazepines. But for cannabis, as always, there's a double standard. So they, if you have tolerance and you withdraw, and then there's also cravings and a bunch of other of the criteria really need to be reworked and redone, you end up diagnosed with a cannabis addiction. And then you end up um, roping in and pathologizing all these medicinal patients that are using it. They're not addicted. They're using it with benefit. It's like the opposite. And it's just completely inappropriate we do that. And I think we need to fully rethink our definition of cannabis addiction so that we do discover who's struggling and who needs empathy treatment and support, but we don't label and stigmatize and pathologize all these people that are using cannabis for benefit. I think our definition of, of cannabis addiction is to a certain extent still a hangover from the war on drugs. Now, there's all this discussion of the gateway theory. They, the, on the war on drugs, a, a talking point used to be that cannabis was a gateway to heroin, and uh, that's nonsense. I mean, everybody who drinks milk as a child, uh, well, everybody who turns into becomes addicted to heroin drank milk as a child. Right. So milk and heroin addiction are associated. That doesn't mean that the milk that the you know one-year-old drinks causes the heroin addiction at age 20. It just means that there's a statistical association and they've went back and looked and it was much more the tobacco and the alcohol than the cannabis. There is no gateway onto addiction with cannabis. But ironically, a lot of the cannabis uh, patients have sort of used that word because they find it's a gateway off of addiction. Many, many people substitute cannabis for alcohol. And they, which is safer, and this is called harm reduction. It's a, it's a net benefit to the individual and to the society if, when you substitute a more dangerous drug like heroin or alcohol for a less dangerous drug like cannabis. So people are finding that it's a gateway off of addiction. Now, uh, just very briefly, uh, we have good treatments for opiate addiction: uh, suboxone, methadone, uh, cannabis. I find is better for treating the chronic pain that causes people to become addicted mm -hmm. in the first place, a lot of the anxiety that causes people to get addicted into the first place, and and for treating the withdrawal symptoms of addiction. It's much better than any of the pharmaceuticals. And that's where I found it really helpful 15 years ago when I was suffering with my addiction for the withdrawal symptoms. But I don't use it as a primary treatment for opiate addiction because I just give them Suboxone, which has better mm -hmm. data. Suboxone has a 50 to 80% reduction in overdose and death. So I'm like, why not go with the medication that has more yeah. data? But I think it has a huge role in treating chronic pain, anxiety, insomnia, and withdrawal uh, symptoms as an adjunct mm -hmm. treatment as part of a gateway off of addiction. Well, and I'm so glad you brought up the, um, you know, using it to treat the underlying pain that led to the use of opioids in the first place, because I think a lot of people don't realize that opiates have this tendency to make pain worse over time if you keep taking them. Um, and it, it becomes this like vicious cycle that the folks get caught up in that um, I'm a chronic pain uh, um, sufferer as well, I guess you'd say. Um, so I can relate to that experience. Um, and it's, it's just interesting, you know, cannabis affects pain in very different ways than opiates. And so um, you don't get that same effect where the sensitizing effect over time um, no, absolutely. And, and the quality of life is much better 
in patients treated for chronic pain with cannabis and with opiates. I mean, there are many, many, many studies show that people switch and that their quality of life improves. Now, cannabis is very good for mild to moderate pain. It's very good for the pain that we're all getting as we get older and portlier and a little more arthritic and our knees yeah. and our back start to go. It, you don't use cannabis for severe pain. If you break your arm or you have a surgery in your spine, then you need opiates or you use mm -hmm. opiates for a few days and then you switch to cannabis. But for the mild to moderate pain, I, the pain, I would far rather have a patient on cannabis than opiates because you're not as out of it. Yeah. You're not opiates cause itchiness and constipation and falls and sedation. It's just a much better quality of life with medicinal cannabis. No, that's a good way to put it too. Cause the way I've described it is um, like for some of my um, like neuropathic pain and stuff like that, it can, cannabis can kind of turn down the volume. It doesn't make the pain go away, but it can kind of turn down the volume so that it's not always kind of um, getting your attention all the time. It allows you to forget about it a little bit. But no, you're absolutely, absolutely right. That's because it affects, I, I've used cannabis for pain too. And it is really interesting. The pain's still there, but it doesn't bother you. And yes. it actually affects the part of your brain that interprets pain as a noxious sensation. So you that still feel the pain. It also dulls the pain, but you still feel a lot of the pain. Even with opiates, you still feel the pain. I mean, you can't knock pain out unless you use anesthesia and you're unconscious. Right. But with cannabis, the quality of life goes up because people... Just as you're saying, they perceive the pain, but it's not as troubling to them. So they could focus and do other things. Yeah. And this is a good segue into talking about um, what's real and what's not around the um, medical applications of cannabis and the actual benefits that people are um, receiving. So in your book, this is something you, you spend a, quite a bit of time on trying to... Um, kind of lay out the where we're at right now in terms of what does the data support? What does it not support? So let's talk a little bit about that. Um, we've already highlighted several things here, but what are some of the big things that cannabis, that the data is definitely there, that cannabis seems to be a very uh, good option for? And then what are some of the conditions where the data is still lacking and we're, we're still trying to kind of understand its, its role, if any, it will have? Well, that's a great question. It's also a little bit of a trick question because part yeah. of what everybody's fighting about is what counts as data. Uh, doctors look for a very particular type of evidence, a randomized controlled trial, which wasn't funded in terms of benefits of cannabis. They only looked at the harms. So they look for a very particular type of data uh, that, that doesn't exist yet because we've it's still a Schedule One controlled substance, cannabis. They, the government has it classified as no medical utility, which is nonsense. And high abuse liability, which is also nonsense. It is like mild to moderate abuse liability. But um, and we're using much more real world evidence in medicine, which is data from like patient registries and patient data banks and outcome measures. So we have a lot of data for cannabis, but people debate like about the strength and the quality and the relative merits of the different data. Mm -hmm. But an example where cannabis doesn't work, and, and some people think it does, is it does not treat cancer. Cannabis it does not treat your cancer. Very interestingly, in the cells, cannabis and the different components of cannabis, cannabis is a very complicated plant with 500 right. different yeah. molecules in it, but the different components kill cancer cells in the lab, in the Petri dish. Yeah. But there haven't been studies yet that it kills cancer in people. And some cannabis proponents really think that it does. If you have cancer, 
go to an oncologist and have them treat your cancer. We're very good, or they're very good, I'm not an oncologist, um, at treating cancer. I mean, people live much longer and they have much higher quality of life now uh, with a diagnosis of cancer. You know, it depends what type of cancer. Some we're better right. at treating than others. But, ca but cannabis is extremely effective at treating the symptoms from the cancer, the pain, the anxiety, the insomnia, the weight loss, the loss of appetite, and it's extremely effective at treating the nausea and vomiting that come along with the chemotherapy, as my, my brother Danny experienced when he was a teenager. So um, I think that in, in some ways, both sides have it right and both sides have it wrong, but I think it's really, really clear to, to be uh, educated on what cannabis can and can't do because there's so much nonsense and misinformation on both sides. Um, on the other hand, you know, the American, the International Association for the Society of Pain or the Internet, International Pain Society, the IASP, came out about a year ago and saying that there's no evidence that cannabis treats, it's hard to say this with a straight face, treats chronic pain. And there are like, you know, tens of millions of people, if not hundreds of millions across the world that are safely and effectively treating their chronic pain. And anybody who's used cannabis knows that, I mean, again, it doesn't work for everybody, but that most people who've tried it know that you don't feel the pain as much and it doesn't bother you. And for this pain society uh, to come out and say that when even the National Academy of Sciences, Engineering and Medicine in the yeah. United States in 2017, which went over 10,000 studies. And again, the United States government haven't been flower children about cannabis. Even they concluded that there's conclusive, conclusive evidence that cannabis treats pain in many patients. So uh, you get a lot of doctors still saying really, really silly things about cannabis. And, you know, when people say these things, when people say it doesn't cure pain, then the anti-cannabis people, get, uh, the pro-cannabis people get triggered, and then they think the anti-cannabis people don't know anything. And right. when the pro-cannabis people say, oh, yeah, I, I'm going to treat my lung cancer with cannabis, the anti-cannabis people think the pro-cannabis people don't know anything. And it just gets more polarized. And I yeah. really think, and this is part of why I wrote my book, Seeing Through the Smoke, there's a, a certain amount of agreement that we should have by now. We should all agree that it shouldn't be used in pregnancy or breastfeeding, except under particular circumstances. People obviously shouldn't drive before taking it, but there shouldn't be a, a double standard for cannabis. And people who suffer from psychosis can't use it. Um, and in addition, uh, teenagers can't use it. And there should be agreement that it helps with pain and insomnia and nausea during chemotherapy, because it, the people who say that it doesn't are just getting more and more out of touch and people just aren't listening to them. Again, yeah, yeah. if the American Medical Association is going to put derogatory quotation marks on medical marijuana, I mean, it's no wonder that it used to be 80% of doctors were members of the American Medical Association, and now it's like 15% and rapidly dropping. And yeah. the American Psychiatric Association also has the derogatory quotation marks, and they don't believe that cannabis treats anxiety or depression or PTSD. And it's hard to find a veteran that won't claim that cannabis helps with PTSD. And and again, millions of people are using it for anxiety. So I just feel like, you know, each side can present itself on certain parts of this is very out of touch. And there just is a lot of common ground we could find if we stop bickering with each other and start listening to each other. No, absolutely. And it's really, you know, it's a it's a precarious situation because it's like cannabis is becoming this topic that because there's so much resistance by these organizations to acknowledge the positive sides that it's it's leading to a supreme distrust in the organizations themselves across the board 
Um, and that trust is going to be hard to regain. Uh, absolutely. There's such a gulf, for example, between the psychiatrists in this country that say that cannabis shouldn't be used to treat any psychiatric condition and the millions of people that are very beneficially using cannabis for all these psychiatric conditions. You know, you wonder if it's just a hangover from the drug war that they're so out of touch, or you wonder if it has to do with that Upton Sinclair quote, it's difficult for a man to understand something if under, if not understanding it, you know, supports his salary. Uh, you right, know, right, like right, you have right. to pay psychiatrists yeah, yeah. a lot of money to get these psychiatric medications. And it's, you know, this is a very cynical me that believes this. I, 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 I in my heart of hearts, I, I don't believe people are that cynical and, and strictly money oriented, but it's true that people treat their own anxiety and depression with cannabis and PTSD, and they have to go to a psychiatrist to get these psychiatric medicines, but it's very, very interesting. And, um, you know, both sides need some humility and some open-mindedness. The, the pro-cannabis people, any new study that comes out about a harm about cannabis, everybody should want to know about harms. If you use cannabis medicinally or recreationally, you should want to know about the harms, just like you should want to know about the harms about alcohol. You still might say, I'm going to drink anyways, because I like drinking alcohol, but you should understand the harms. It's the exact same thing with cannabis. But because the U.S. government has lied about cannabis for so long, um, people, you know, pro-cannabis people can be like, well, when they see a new study about harm, they can be like, oh, this is just the same old propaganda. Yeah. And yeah. I think that's a very dangerous attitude. You have to read the study and see what it's really saying and if it's a good study and if it's helpful. Because, again, we all have to understand the harms. And it's the same yeah. thing with the study of benefits. The anti-cannabis people just say, oh, this isn't really data. This isn't really something I'm going to believe. And you can sort of tell on Twitter who's going to say this was a good study and who mm -hmm. is going to say this was a bad study based on the conclusion of the study, not based on the quality of the science. Yeah. So I think both sides have to get past all this bickering and all this um, sort of uh, sort of uh, it's called um, confirmation bias, where yes. you interpret all the new studies and news articles and data that you're exposed to in a way that confirms what you already believe. Uh, and we've got to just all, again, for everybody's sake, look at this more neutrally and more open-mindedly. I mean, we could find that it's, you know, new studies could come out that say that it does cure cancer. New studies can come out that say it actually does hurt your memory in adults uh, permanently, which it doesn't at all or hasn't been shown to. But we need to be open-minded and just not prejudge these, judge these studies based on our uh, political leanings, our preconceptions yeah. about cannabis and sort of our, our current belief system, or we're not going to learn anything if we, if we do that. No, that's, that's absolutely right. And you're, you're singing music to my ears because you know, like my whole role in this game is to try to encourage people to think critically, um, on both sides. And what you're describing is exactly right, that there's a suspension of critical thought on both sides because of the tribalism that's, you know, really come about. And, you know, just like you said, with the negative studies that the pro-cannabis folks will kind of immediately jump to say it's propaganda, if there's a study that they think promotes a positive outcome, they often over-exaggerate the findings of those studies, <coughs> or like you said, they ignore the quality. I've noticed, uh, just because with my background being more in like, um, you know, chemistry and, and um, sort of biochem oriented, I notice... Anytime there's a study that might possibly show that um, terpenes influence the entourage effect, for instance, those get really blown up 
And then I have the unfortunate role to be like, well, actually, you know, um, let's look at how this study was done. And it doesn't actually say that. And there's all these limitations. And yeah, it's preclinical. And, you know, what happens in the human body is a lot more complex than what happens in a Petri dish with one receptor. And, um, and it, it's hard. It's, it's really hard to um, get both sides to kind of lay down their arms a little bit and just approach the issue honestly and critically um, without letting all of the other baggage get involved. It, that's absolutely true. It, it, it gets even more complicated when the study shows, for example, I'll make this up, but teen use down across the country, except for increase in, you know, 14 to 16 year olds. So then yeah. the anti-cannabis people will be like, aha, there was an increase in 14 to 16 year olds. And then the pro-cannabis people will be like, Aha, teen use went down except for this very small subsegment of the population. And people can take the same study and generate like yeah. completely different headlines. That goes back to what I was saying before. It sounds like we're talking about two different plants that were grown on different planets, nourished by different suns, which is why I wrote the book in the first place. It doesn't work for us to have two incompatible belief systems about this one plant. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I guess on that note, <clears throat> what are some of the most common misunderstandings that you've run into? We mentioned the cancer one, um, but what are some other common misunderstandings that you see kind of um, repeated frequently on social media and that sort of thing um, on both sides? Well, on the anti side, um, you know, they love to say or tweet, smoked cannabis isn't medicine. And in reality... Mm no doctors or few doctors recommend smoking it. You can use a dry herb vaporizer, which just right. eats it up a little bit. So you're not getting the combustion products in your lung. You could use a tincture under your tongue, like the old fashioned medicinal tinctures we used to use a hundred years ago. You can yep. take an edible, you know, be careful with the dosing because the edible doesn't kick in right away. But as long as you start low and go slow, perfectly safe to use an edible and have long lasting relief from pain or from nausea or whatever is afflicting you. So uh, I think it's like a combination of like misunderstanding and misportrayal because I think they must know on some level that a lot of people most yeah. don't smoke it. They use tinctures, but they love to use that as like a talking point, as a propaganda point. And, um, you know, uh, one thing on the pro side that drives me nuts is that they make um, cannabis into these really tasty little gummy bears or chocolates that a four-year-old mm. or a pet would gladly eat the whole box of or the whole bag of. And you know, when I when I say this is really not safe, people, that's why there are there is an increase in in mm -hmm. uh, visits to the emergency room for inadvertent cannabis overconsumption. Now, taking too much cannabis isn't deadly. It's impossible to physically overdose and die on cannabis. But that said, if you take too much, it's a very miserable experience for many people. You can be very, very anxious and disoriented. And imagine a little kid doing it. They just ate the gummy bears. They they didn't. They can't read the words THC. They wouldn't know what THC means. And then, you know, the response I get is just amazing from some of the pro cannabis people. I suspect that they tend to also be the people that manufacture the gummies. But you know, they're yeah, like probably. people should just be responsible. People need to be responsible. People would just be responsible. This wouldn't be a problem. But you know, as someone who's been a primary care doctor for adults for twenty five years, I could tell you. Not everybody is responsible all the time. That shouldn't be a shock to anybody, especially if alcohol or any kind of psychoactive substance like cannabis or anything else is involved. 
So we need to not make them into products that can be left around and inadvertently consumed by a little kid or a pet or a house guest who's visiting. So I think that's an area where I have a disagreement with some of the cannabis advocates. Uh, So I I think both sides, uh, again, can learn. And I I do want to say that I don't have claim or, or pretend or presume to have a monopoly on the truth. And I don't have all the yeah. answers. I've just been involved in this issue for my whole life. I've been practicing med- medicinal cannabis for 25 years, and I've read all the science and I've followed it. I had a front row seat for the legalization movement because of my dad, but I can get it wrong too. I'm sure that in five years, we'll look at my book, Seeing Through the Smoke, and, and new studies will come out and it'll be like, what was that you know, idiot Grinspoon talking about? So I, I don't pretend to have a monopoly on the truth either, but I do feel like I have a pretty balanced perspective on sort of at least what we can all agree on and what we certainly shouldn't be agreeing on. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, taking that, that perspective, what are some aspects of sort of the future of medical cannabis and cannabis science that you're kind of closely following or excited about? Well, I'm closely following and excited about the day when we actually educate doctors about cannabis with information that is helpful to patients so that doctors understand it and can have like mature, adult, helpful, non-judgmental, non-stigmatizing conversations with their patients about cannabis that are actually helpful. Most polls show that patients want to get their information about cannabis from their doctors or from their nurse, but about 2% do because the doctors don't know anything about it that's helpful to the patients. And a lot of what they do know isn't helpful or isn't even true. So, you know, there's a whole neurotransmitter system called the endocannabinoid system, which is the system of receptors and neurotransmitters. Uh, It's very, very old. It's much older than humans. We've only been using cannabis for five to 10,000 years. It just happens to be the neurotransmitter system that cannabis bootstraps onto to work its effect, just like opiates bootstrap on the opiate a system that we have. And as a hangover from the war on drugs, they're only teaching the endocannabinoid system in 13% of medical schools. And like, how could you possibly understand cannabis if you don't understand the cellular and molecular mechanism by which it works? And for doctors to not be learning about this is just scandalous. I mean, even yeah. if you are against cannabis and think it's like the devil's lettuce, you want to know how it works in the body so you can protect people. So um, there's been a huge blind spot. And we're basically 50 years behind in educating our healthcare providers, our doctors, our nurses, our physician assistants, our nurse practitioners. So I'm mostly, of course, I'm not a researcher. I'm a clinician educator. So I'm mostly interested in helping people get access to cannabis, having them not get in trouble with the law and having doctors be educated so that patients and doctors can have good uh, conversation, which again, increases the benefit for everybody and minimizes harms. You know, with cannabis, there can be interactions with other medications. There can be changes in your requirement for anesthesia if you're going to have surgery. None of this is a big deal if the doctor and the patient talk about it. But if the patient's afraid to mention their cannabis use, medicinal or recreational to the doctor, because the doctor has been judgmental and non-helpful, then the patient finds another doctor. And you have these two non-communicating systems, the regular medical system and the medical right. cannabis system. That's really dangerous. So no matter what, we all have to do a better job of communicating with each other. That'll make everything much safer. Yeah, absolutely. I am very much looking forward to that day as well when 
um, education about the endocannabinoid system, the endocannabinoidome, how these systems interconnect with other systems that physicians already know a lot about. You know, I um, I was talking to someone recently and we were discussing that, you know, physicians, they understand eicosanoids. They understand, you know, these inflammatory signaling compounds and the systems used for those. And endocannabinoids kind of fit neatly next to the concept of eicosanoids when you're, you know, studying physiology and everything. So there's an easy pathway to introduce um, clinicians to these concepts without getting into all of the baggage of big cannabis, you know, um, but even just talking about just how the body handles um, immune signaling, inflammatory signaling, and talking about endocannabinoids in this context of which, you know, they already understand there's, there's easy ways, I think, to avoid the stigmas on all sides and just be very um, kind of matter of fact in, in educating about these things within a, a kind of schema that um, is already there. Um, but it's unfortunate, you know, like you were saying, 13% of schools are teaching about the endocannabinoid system, but within that 13%, the coverage uh, varies quite a bit. And a lot of times it's as simple as like, well, there's CB1, CB2 receptors and THC interacts with them and that's it. Better um, than nothing. So <laughs> it is a lot better than nothing. Yeah. But it's, it highlights, you know, how much further we, we have to go. And I wanted to ask you your unique perspective on this. Have you, do you see medical schools um, starting to prioritize this issue that, you know, that we do need to get this wrapped into the curriculum a lot more than it is, um, both for the sake of patients and just to ensure that physicians will be able to even understand the questions that their patients are asking them. Absolutely. Uh, we're making slow but steady progress in getting all of this into um, the medical school canon, educational canon. Um, programs are coming up. Educational programs are coming up. More doctors are able to teach because they've learned about it, and that becomes yeah. sort of self-perpetuating. And then, frankly, there's such a huge demand for doctors to know about this stuff from patients. And there's such a huge demand. All the young medical students want to learn this stuff. They're like, why on earth are you not teaching us about cannabis? All of our patients are asking about it. You know, we're all in favor of it. And, you know, it's just some of the dinosaurs in our profession have a lot too much power. You know, I call it OFS, the sort of old fart syndrome is preventing <laughs> yeah. uh, some of this education from, from entering into, into the system. But I, but I think that, again, any and every doctor should want to know how cannabis works. I mean, if you're against cannabis or for cannabis, you have to know how it works because patients are using it and it's just not safe. It's like trying to, it's like trying to um, take care of people with opiates without understanding the whole endorphin right. system or, or trying to like understand how non-steroidals work without understanding like the immune system. It's like knowledge is power and we're doing a huge disservice to our patients. But I, but again, there's such an outcry from patients and from younger doctors and from medical students. And, you know, uh, I, I think it's getting better every year, but we're digging out of a pretty deep hole yeah. from this like 50 year uh, gap because of the war on drugs, where not only did they not teach us about the endocannabinoid system or about anything helpful to talk to patients about cannabis with, with patients about cannabis, but a lot of what they told us was like, just not true. I mean, the nonsense that they taught me in my medical school uh, in the 1970s, to the extent they even mentioned it 
at all. You know, I think that there's some like unlearning that has to be done in addition to learning. So it's a tall order, but we'll definitely get there because there's such demand from patients and such demand from younger doctors. Yeah, definitely. And it, it's exciting to think about all of that really progressing and the way the effects from that will cascade out over time to um, affect medicine broadly. You know, something that excites me about studying cannabis is understanding the endocannabinoid system, the endocannabinoid dome, and thinking about, you know, looking ahead over the next 50, 100 years, the future of medical cannabis really goes beyond cannabis and really becomes more about how do we influence the system that has been so, um, you know, uh, ignored as um, medical, modern medical science has evolved, as pharmaceuticals have been developed. Um, much of it has, has very much ignored this role that, um, that fats play in signaling in the body. So it, it really is a, like a paradigm shift in how we think about medicine and how we think about treating um, conditions. And so I think it's, it's worth pointing out to folks that cannabis as a plant has really opened up this doorway to a new wave of medicine that we're really still on the, the verge of that I think we're going to see play out over the next hundred years. Um, new, new types, and it, this is already happening. Pharmaceutical companies are already rushing to develop endocannabinoid system modulating drugs now that we have a better understanding. Um, and we've seen a little bit of that before, but we have a lot more knowledge now. And we've seen Rimonabant and, um, you know, other drugs that have been produced. But it's, it's going to be really interesting to see um, how the healthcare system, how medicine evolves in the context of knowledge around the endocannabinoid system. Because um, it does go further than cannabis. Um, oh, absolutely. And, uh, the the example you gave for Monaban was really interesting. They, it's widely known to everybody that cannabis makes you hungry and gives you the munchies. So they thought, why don't we block the cannabinoid receptors and that will help with weight loss. And it really did help with weight loss. But the endocannabinoid system also mediates our emotional reaction to things and the way we form memories and the way we process our feelings. So they had patients with this um, medication that were losing weight, but they were also committing suicide and becoming like severely depressed. And they're like, okay, let's yank this off the market. We can't just fully block the cannabinoid system because people start killing themselves. But imagine the day now that instead of like focusing on arresting people and tormenting them for using cannabis, we're actually focusing on developing good drugs. And imagine if you could tickle just those parts of the endocannabinoid system that affect your weight, but you, but the, the drug is, um, you know, uh, targeted so that it doesn't affect your brain. It doesn't affect the emotional regulation centers in your brain. You can take advantage of all the benefits that cannabis provides, you know, pain, um, anxiety, sleep without having the yeah. disadvantages, like the short-term effect on your memory. So I think it's, I wouldn't say that the only thing I disagree with you, I wouldn't say over the next hundred years, I'd say over the next 10 years, it's going to be absolutely mind blowing. What, um, what different, uh, the other thing to mention, what the different drugs they come up with based on cannabis, uh, to help people with. And then the final thing to mention is, as I mentioned briefly, cannabis is a very complicated plant with 500 different molecules in it. That's why some types of cannabis make you want to go out and dance or write a book or like clean up your house and other types want, make you want to sit in the sofa and watch a movie. You know, some are better for pain, some are better for sleeping, some are better for nausea because it's a very complicated plant with 500 different molecules. So imagine if we start understanding 
each of these molecules and what they do in isolation or in different combinations. I mean, it's almost infinite what we're going to be able to alleviate in terms of human suffering um, if we continue on the current path of like legalizing and researching rather than locking people up. It's going to be so much better. Absolutely. Yeah, it's really exciting to think about. And I think that's a, a really good way to start to wrap things up, although I have a couple of personal questions that I've been dying to ask you that are totally unrelated to cannabis. But you have a connection to one of my favorite human beings that's ever lived, which is Carl Sagan. Um, I know that your dad was friends with Carl Sagan, and I saw recently on your social media that um, your mom gave you a special gift. Yeah, I have it right uh, here, actually. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Carl Sagan uh, was very close friends with my family. And actually, I got to witness growing up like him using cannabis with my parents. And he really, I wrote about this a lot in my book. He really thought, you know, this is the guy who run, won the Pulitzer Prize for Dragons of Eden and had the yeah. best selling book at the same time and the New York Times bestseller, both in fiction for contact and nonfiction for comment at the same time. Like, who was the best selling book? in fiction and nonfiction at the same time. This is a brilliant guy. And he truly thought that cannabis uh, facilitated his creative process. And again, I write a lot about that in my book, Seeing Through the Smoke. And he came back from Egypt, uh, you know, traveled a lot, taught a lot, and he brought this beautiful hookah for my parents, uh, which I'll, whoops, I'll hold up right here. It's just this beautiful, I think it's wow. hookah. And I just remember my dad and Carl Sagan smoking from this and you know, Carl would interrupt a big puff and would then help edit my English paper. And, you know, it's really mind blowing. And I grew up with this association with cannabis with like smart people who tried to help other people and change the world for a better place and with interesting ideas and with interesting conversation because our living room, because my dad was a cannabis advocate, always had these really smart pro-social people using cannabis in it. I also associated the smell of cannabis smoke with healing because my brother Danny would use it and he stopped throwing up. Yeah. So I just had a very, very different exposure uh, to cannabis than a lot of other people. Um, and yes, I'm very happy to have my my Egyptian hookah. <laughs> that is that is so incredible. <clears throat> I mean, both your dad and Carl Sagan were some of the you know really huge influences on me and kind of the the courses that I've chosen to take um, in my life. I remember one of um, one of the last uh, research projects that I remember your dad being involved in, They were, uh, and maybe you were involved in it too, because I think it was in the 90s or early 2000s, um, and it was a big data collection on cannabis and psychedelic experiences um, and looking through that. And I actually participated in that. Um, I remember, yeah, back then. So um, our meeting today for me is kind of symbolic on multiple levels. Um, one, connecting with you and, and being able to learn from your experiences and having our, our, our paths cross, but also um, the fact that, that you have been influenced by these people that have also influenced me on, in a totally different way. It's just very meaningful to me um, to be able to speak to you today. And it's very meaningful to me that you took the time and were willing to you know, share these memories, share these experiences and your perspective. And I, I hope everyone listening today understands, um, and I've tried to reiterate this multiple, multiple times, but your perspective is one very much worth listening to and paying attention to. It's informed by many, many things, um, experience and knowledge. 
Um, and so I hope that in this conversation today, everyone listening, that, that that's been able to come across. And I hope that everyone listening um, checks out your book. Um, also, you're very active on social media. So I want to point that out too, that folks listening, if they're new to um, getting introduced to you, that it, it's quite easy to interact with you online, um, yeah, especially on LinkedIn and Twitter and things like that. So I just wanted to make sure to highlight that for our listeners that for anyone who knows me very well and my how excited I get about cannabis science and, and all of these things we've talked about, um, meeting you is a very big deal to me. I hope it's a big deal to everyone listening that they've been able to, to hear you speak. And I really hope that um, this will lead to more people learning about your work, interacting with you. And um, I'm very excited to see all the work you're doing and how you're influencing the whole landscape um, uh, for the better. It's, it's, it's very excellent work that, that you're doing. And um, I just want you to know I appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for saying that. It is so kind of you. And I really appreciate the work that you do educating people about cannabis. That's why the dial is moving because we're all working together to educate people. And, and I did want to mention, um, I, I'm happy to answer questions. If any of the listeners have any, um, they can reach me on my website, which is just uh, www.petergrinspoon.com. It's grin like smile, spoon like fork. And um, they could just reach me on my website. And I'm, there's a contact me and I'm happy to answer questions because a lot of times people listen to a really interesting conversation like this. And then like an hour later, they're like, well, what about this? And so I like to make yep. myself available to answer questions. Well, I really appreciate that. Um, that's really great that you make yourself so available. Um, and I encourage folks to do that. Reach out if you have questions, take advantage of these opportunities to um, connect with people that are, um, that are knowledgeable and have so much experience to draw from. I think a lot of times there's kind of an ivory tower syndrome where people feel disconnected um, from um, a lot of uh, sort of thought leaders in the space or people that have been, you know, active for a long time. And I always try to encourage people, you read a good study you like, email the author. They're almost always happy to talk to you about it. Um, so yeah, everyone listening, take advantage of that opportunity. You might be surprised how much feedback you'll get. Um, and with that, um, Peter, thanks so much for for everything, everyone listening, um, go check out Seeing Through the Smoke. Um, get that book and read through it, share it with your friends and family. And, you know, the whole goal is can we meet somewhere in the middle and can we can we find our areas of agreement and move forward in a, the most productive way possible? And um, that is that is a an objective, a mission worth getting behind. So Amen to that. Um, yes, amen to that. So with that, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning in. I uh, hope you enjoyed it. Stay curious and take it easy. Bye-bye. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye, everybody. If you're curious about cannabis like me, then get connected to the Curious About Cannabis ecosystem and let's learn together. Visit cacpodcast.com slash connect to join our learning community on our Discord server and you can participate in regular giveaways, dive into the latest cannabis research, connect with certified Curious About Cannabis educators, hang out in our break room with other curious minds, and more. Best of all, it's totally free. Just visit cacpodcast.com slash connect to learn more. Or click connect on the Curious About Cannabis app, which is available on Android and coming soon to iOS. 